Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. It's good to be with you. All of the people up in Bloomington would love to be here today and to see the, uh, the, the generosity of your love to men and their families that we love. We love Andrew and Sarah, and we love Michael and Emily and their children. And we're so thankful that they have found a home where you allow them to, to lead you, to rebuke you, to encourage you. It warms our hearts. You give us a lot of strength. Uh, and I, I, myself, and many of us think of you all the time. So thank you for, for loving those that we love. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray as we come to your word that you will give us humility. Help us to see ourselves as we are. Father, be with our children. Help them to see us humble and meek under your hand and under your word. On this wonderful day, when we see the fruition of Michael's aspirations to be a shepherd of your flock as he's ordained, we pray that you will make us holy and that you will confirm in heaven what will be done here on earth. And now as we come to your word, recorded by your apostle Paul, we ask that the words that I say and what every one of us thinks in his heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, would you open to Romans chapter 4? <clears throat> I'm getting to the years at the end of my work as a pastor, and I have adopted a habit um, for the last eight years now, actually, we moved into a home, we used to have a postage stamp for a yard, and there was no possibility of having a garden or anything, so we moved to the west side of town and got two and a half acres. We have a flowers and garden, planted lots of trees, but with that came the job of cutting grass. And I cut about 10 acres a week because my neighbor has bad cancer and can't be bouncing on his, uh, his tractor, Charlie Dugdale. And then uh, we have a woman next door whose husband committed suicide. And so I would cut her five acres. So I, I cut a lot of grass. And I decided when I started doing it that uh, it's such a battle for me to read my Bible that I would always listen to Scripture as I cut the grass. So I have headphones or earphones that plug out the noise. And, and what I did was I started listening to Romans. And so now for about eight years... I've listened to anywhere between one and three, one and three full repetitions of Romans every single week during the cutting season, which is what, 21 to 23 weeks. I'd hoped that I would memorize Romans, <laughs> but it, I don't know why, I'm just thick-headed, but I have not memorized it, but it is interesting we started preaching in Romans about nine months ago. And it is interesting that when you listen to something over and over and over and over and over and over again, it begins to be a part of your thought processes, even if you don't have it memorized. And the Apostle Paul, 
There is a word that I like because I bear some resemblance to it. It's probably a word you don't know, but then you probably don't bear a resemblance to it. But the word is pertinacious. And it's a combination of sort of impertinent, pushy, and tenacious. So a really pushes, stubborn person, okay? That's a person that's pertinacious. And I would say that the Apostle Paul is a really pushy, stubborn man. If you've ever read through the book of Galatians, it is a pushy, stubborn book. And God uses that in a wonderful way for us. Well, Romans is at least as much that way. And when you don't go progressively through, you don't realize how pushy Paul is in Romans. But listen, the point we're going to be looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul has already made over and over and over and over. You know, your parents say to you, how many times do I have to tell you? Well, the Apostle Paul could say that about every eight verses in Romans. How many times do I... And, you know, sometimes the Apostle Paul does that. He says, you know, I won't, I, won't, I won't apologize to repeat myself. I have said this before. I'm saying it to you again, you know. Now, why is the Apostle Paul so stubborn and pushy in the book of Romans? Why? Well, it's because there are many things that your children will never learn unless you're stubborn and pushy with them. Okay, I was talking about Michael and gambling. We had to be stuck, really stubborn and pushy with Michael. Stop it, stop it, stop it. It took him a long time to stop it. There's nothing wrong with that. That's who you and I are. We need to be dealt with in a firm way in order to repent of our sin and to believe the truth. That's who we are. That's how I am. And I assume that's who you are. Well, the Apostle Paul knows us. It's one of the things I love about him is that the Apostle Paul is so sensitive to the thoughts that we have in our brains, uh, to how stubborn we are in believing what is not true. And uh, so he keeps pushing, 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 pushing. Now, I, I have said all this to you because I want you to understand as we pick up the text this morning, we're going to be in Romans 4, beginning with verse 1. He's already said this a hundred times in the book of Romans. But you're picking it up in the middle. So let's pick it up in the middle. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is the word of the Lord. Um, as I listen to the book of Romans, every time I get to this text, my heart is skips with joy. Where? Where does it skip with joy? 
Well, it skips with joy when he quotes David, King David. Blessed are those whose... It skips with joy when I hear lawless deeds, because that's me. I am just overwhelmed with my lawlessness, the perpetual uh, (laughs) sinfulness of my heart. And then whose sins have been covered, lawless deeds and sins. That's where my heart skips. Lawless deeds, oh, thank God. Sins, oh, thank God. And then he says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So it's a threesome. Lawless deeds, sins, sins not taken into account. This morning, uh, in your Sunday school class, you had a wonderful... Uh, time of studying the Eighth Commandment, don't steal. And as I sat there listening to Michael and the rest of you uh, open this up, I thought, every single one of us in this room is constantly stealing. And if you've ever read somebody like Thomas Watson on the Ten Commandments, uh, it's, it's an exercise in despair. Because about the time you're ready to cop to something, he has ten other things for you to cop to. And that's just in this commandment, in this little paragraph. And, and the book is about that thick. And it's on the Ten Commandments. It's like, pow, you just want to shoot yourself. And this is the way every single commandment of God is. As you study the commandment, you realize it's not the kind of uh, uh, superficial uh, 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 skin-deep, pharisaical, legalistic, easy thing to do that we make it into. But the law of the God pierces to the heart. And every one of us, with every law of God, if we truly are honest before it, we see that we violate that law and that one and that one and that one constantly in our lives, Okay? This is who you are, and you know this is who I am. You're all willing to say this is who I am, but this is who you are. And how amazing, I tell my congregation that I have such trouble believing women sin. You know, because to a man, a woman looks, you know, pretty good. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, a lot of times we feel like, well, if I could trade my sins for hers, I'd I'd be doing much better, you know? But then you listen to the reading of Ezekiel this morning. Unbelievable. There was no minimalizing of the moral agency of women in that chapter. And so then we look at that chapter, and I don't know if you noticed in that chapter the theme that was recurrent. But did you notice how constantly adultery and bloodshed were linked? Did you notice that? And... That's the way it is. When we commit adultery, we do kill our children. We know that with abortion today. These people of God, this was a Presbyterian church in the Old Testament. And these people of God were lustful, embarrassing in their lustfulness, and then they killed the children that were the products of their lust. That's why adultery and bloodshed are put together, because the people of God were putting their babies in the mouths of the idols and burning them. And that's what abortion is today. And so look, Presbyterian churches should be the place where we're not afraid to depend upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
because we know ourselves. Because we have preachers who don't flatter us and who, who tell us, give us a straight dope. You know, they're, they're not lying to us. But as time goes on, we have ta- teaching on, on the Ten Commandments and the Westminster Larger Catechism, and we, we blather on about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. And, and pretty soon we believe our, our own words, you know, and we think we're sophisticated, and pretty soon we stop being, being sinners. And I want to say to you today, as we get into this text, that <laughs> the only person that can appreciate This text of scripture is a person who's a real sinner. Because there is no hope for the person who isn't a sinner. There's no hope. Jesus said this over and over again. Why do you think Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous? Was it because the righteous didn't need him? No, it's because the righteous were were deluded. They were self-deluded. They lied to themselves. The deceitfulness of sin had clouded their judgment. They had surrounded themselves with teachers who stopped convicting them of sin so they'd flee to Jesus and began to flatter them, okay? And so the Apostle Paul is in the middle of dealing with a Presbyterian church, okay? Or whatever you are, Baptist, I don't care what you are, Protestant, I mean a Bible-believing. Protestant church is who the Apostle Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church in Rome, all right? And, And they're like us. They're you, they're me, all right? And he finds that this church is really, really resentful about the fact that they're supposed to cling to Jesus. Now, that sounds stupid, doesn't it? Why would anybody not want to cling to Jesus? Well, in, in the cosmic, we all want to cling to Jesus, right? We all have, you know, on our steeples, we have crosses, But in the immediate, when our wife is telling us that we're being a jerk, nobody wants to cop to any specific sin. Have you ever noticed this? Especially when it's your wife pointing it out to you. I mean, am I different? You know, last night, I'm going to bed. I'm minding my own business. And I open my computer to get my email. And my wife says, if you're going to be snarky like that in emails that you circulate to my family, then I'm not going to forward you my family's emails. And then it's 1130 at night. You know, it's like, you know. So, of course, all night, what do you think you think about? You know? Ah, All right. All right. I'm going to be preaching on this in the morning. <laughs> I guess I have to sort of maybe a little bit cop. Cop to having particular. This is the way we are. We never want to cop to anything specifically. We just want to be a sinner, right? And the, the Apostle Paul is in the middle of dealing with people just like us who want to be Christians, want to believe in Jesus, want to be baptized, want to do the Lord's Supper, want to have all the outside apparatus of uh, being godly, depending on Jesus, being Christians, looking to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, submitting to their pastors and elders, listening to the Titus II women. They want all of the appearance of godliness while denying the, the heart. Okay? 
And so what do they do? Well, what they do is they say that they're saved by being good, right? That's what we always do. And we always begin to, to keep like a, a, a tally sheet, you know, in our mind of, well, yesterday I did this and this, but I didn't do this and this yesterday, but today I'm going to do this and that will that will accrue me a little righteousness for what I didn't do yesterday, and the children look neat, and the women at, at the school thought my children looked neat when they got out of the car, and, and now for the piano. And you go through your life, and you begin to order them in such a way that this balance sheet that you're keeping in, in, the, in the presence of a holy God, and, and it isn't so much that you stop looking to God for his mercy, but it's also that you begin to live amongst the people of God and your own family and in your own marriage as a moralist. And everybody else finds it completely intolerable because they know what you're like. Trust me, your children know what you're like. (laughs) You can't fool them. And you're a moralist. The Apostle Paul's dealing with us. He knows what we're like. We're all moralists. And the church is being split apart by people who think they're better than them because, after all, they're not revoicers, you know. They're not those gay Christians, you know, and we're better than them. But then we're hypocritical and greedy. And then there's the people who are displaying too much flesh and, oh, my goodness, those those women are... And then there's the men who are... pristine in their haircuts, you know? And then there's the people who walk around as if they're perfect and you just, they ooze self, right? And then there's, and the Apostle Paul is writing them and he's gone on and on and on about the fact. Chapter one, he says, look, the Gentiles are absolutely filthy. And he goes through their filth and he talks about their idolatry. You know, they refuse to honor God They refuse to give him the glory that he deserves. And look what happens. And he ends up with homosexuality at the end. You know, even their women go after us, you know. And you know all the good Presbyterians are sitting there going, yep, 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 you know. And then he starts, chapter 2, he says, but you, what about you? Then in chapter 2, he goes after the people of God. He says, you're no better than they are. And all the people of God are going, yeah, we are. You bet we are. You know, and he's shaken them to the core. Because he's put them, you, he's, you, you say you shouldn't commit adultery. Okay, you, do you commit adultery? He's like, well, not physically. You know, the difference between the pagans and the Christians is Christians don't touch, right? <laughs> All right. And he keeps going. And then in chapter 3, what does he do? He ends his... Uh, um, <coughs> You know something? I better have some water. Could you get get some for me? Thank you. Sorry. Um, so, so what it is, is it's an indictment. The book of Romans is an indictment. He indicts the Gentiles in front of the good Jews. Then he indicts the good Jews. Then in chapter 3, you know what's in chapter 3? I mean, hair plastered straight back. And it's like, you don't know if you're going to survive the chapter. Because he goes in, into this list of that ends, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
You know, their mouths are putrid. Their hearts are putrid. They're, you know, they're, and there's none righteous, no, not one. So he started with the Gentiles. Well, all the Jews know they're dirty. Then he goes to the people of God. Well, then they're, and then he says, chapter 3, there, there is none righteous, no, not one. Then he says, but what? Well, but God has ordained a way through his son where you can be cleansed. Okay? And he opens this up to them, right? And at the end, if you look at the end of chapter 3, he has so much emphasized the fact that they're sinful and that their only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of faith. That at the end, he has to defend himself against the charge that everybody's thinking, which is verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? He's emphasized faith so much that at the end of that section, he stops, okay, am I nullifying faith? And he simply says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. I think it's Martin Lloyd-Jones that said that you should always preach the gospel in such a way that people accuse you of being antinomian. If you're not being accused of being antinomian at some level, you're not being faithful. Immediately after that statement, do we nullify the law? He begins to nullify the law again. But he's not nullifying the law, okay? But he says, verse 1, what then shall we say? And he's entering into the minds of his people. Do we nullify that? No, may it never be. No, 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 we don't do that. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? So what the Apostle Paul is doing here is the Jews are absolutely convinced that they belong to God, that they are the people of God, that they are the clean ones, all right? They're the righteous ones. They're the good ones. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to get them to despair of their own goodness, all right? He doesn't know how to get it through their heads. And so here what he does is he appeals to the Father. Abraham is the father of the Jews. And so he pulls in an authority that everybody would recognize. He says, what then shall we say? That Abraham, and he's able to say our because he's a Jew. Our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. According to the flesh is this little uh, sort of shot across their bow. You know, our forefather, according to the flesh, right? Why? Well, because all through the New Testament, the issue is the conflict between those who have Abraham as their forefather, according to the flesh, and those who don't, which is to say between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so all through the New Testament, you find this theme in Galatians, it gets at its most intense, of the Jews who have Abraham as their forefather, according to the flesh, demanding that the Gentiles go through the painful rite of circumcision so that they can become according what? According to the flesh, Jews, the final step of a God-fearer, a proselyte, right? And so they're demanding, really, that anybody that wants to be a Christian has to first become a Jew. Do you see this? Now, what is that? Well, listen. This is racism. Okay? It's just pure racism. Now, are you one of these woke people? Any of you woke You've discovered inside your heart that there's just a little bit of that racist inside of you, and so you done woke. Any of you? None. Huh? Well, listen, 
Racism is the oldest thing in the world. The minute there were two people, one was superior to the other. And that's Adam and Eve. The woman that you gave me, she gave me. You know, I mean, it's just deep inside of us to immediately make groups that we look down at other groups on. And so none of you are woke from racism. Just trust me. You know, we're all racist. Now, which group that we look down on and which group we're a part of, that varies. Some of you, you know, when I was driving down here from Charlotte yesterday, you know, I just felt the inner Scotch-Irish in me coming out, you know, looking at the businesses, looking at the food, just feeling the culture. This area is a Scotch-Irish area, right? I mean, you just feel it. I may be wrong, but I have a sense that I'm right because it's my roots, right? So who do the Irish look down on? Well, they look down on the English. Do the English and the, and, and the people up in Scotland like each other? No. No, 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 no. All of us are racists. All of us are classist. All of us are sexist. And the reason is all of us are proud about who we are and we look down on other people. And the only thing that's left is to decide the categories we're going to look down on. The, the sisters look down on the brothers and the brothers look down on the sisters. This is who we are. If you don't recognize this about yourself, you can't enter into the argument that's all through the New Testament. Because you're, you're going to lose it and think it's between Jews and Gentiles. It's not. It's between white and black, educated and uneducated. I tell people, if you want to talk about the real racism in America today, it's the racism of the educated against the uneducated. That's the one that nobody's repenting of. And so let's all cop to the fact that if we were in Rome, the Apostle Paul would be writing us about our sin, our selfishness, our racism. Okay, And the Jews have it figured out. They know that God set them apart as a people. They're proud as proud can be about that. They're not filthy. The Gentiles are filthy because what do they call them in the New Testament? They call them the uncircumcised. Okay? They're filthy. The Jews don't do the sins. That, and furthermore, all the other people are what? Well, they're polytheists. The pantheon of gods of the Roman Empire. All of them have many, many, many gods. And so the Apostle Paul is dealing with this racism of the Jews against the Gentiles. And so he says, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, and then what? Come on. According to the flesh, has found. All right, so what did Abraham find? He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Okay, so... Let's set you aside for the second. Let's go back to Father Abraham, according to the flesh, our father. All right. What did he find? Well, did he find that he was saved by works? They think they're saved by works. They think they're saved by physical descent. They think they're saved by circumcision, by keeping the law. They think they're saved by works. All right. And so he says, hey, 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 look at Father Abraham. What did he find? You know, he's giving them a little breather so that they can look historically, you know, and maybe right. And so he says, what did he find? Did he find that he was saved by works? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Well, look, if you have a godly man saying, well, then he has something to boast about, about your father, godly Abraham. Everybody knows it ain't good. You know, everybody knows it's probably 
probably Abraham didn't have anything to boast about, right? Right? Even though you revere him and honor him, Abraham's not boasting, right? I mean, even the pagans know not to boast. Well, then he has, and so they have a little warning, no, this isn't the right way, but let's go down it a little ways. He has something to boast about, and then he adds this little statement, what? Look at your Bibles, what does he say? Come on. Come on, say it. It's not going to kill you to be verbal. All right? He says, but not before God. Now, what is the Apostle Paul doing there? He's bringing us to our senses. You know, we think that we're saved by works, so he says, okay, how about Abraham? Yep, your father according to the flesh. That's something to boast about. Not before God. And all of a sudden we remember that God is God. You know, he's like, hey, remember, God is God. Not before God. You don't boast before God. And everybody comes to their senses and go, oh, my goodness. No, Abraham wouldn't do that. And Calvin says at this point that he brings in Abraham because they all revere Abraham. The minute they realize Abraham is not boasting before God, he's, Calvin uses the word shame. He's shaming them about the audacity that they have to boast of their works and their law-keeping. Not before God. Okay? And then, you know, at this point, if, if you were one of the ones that, was, that thought you were pretty hot stuff and, you know, generally merited God's kindness and mercy... At this point, you'd be set back on your haunches a little. But the Apostle Paul keeps going. He says, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Now, those of you who are sophisticated enough to know that we should not obey scripture's command for a wife to submit to her husband because we live in a culture that's different from the culture. Those of you who know enough to know that... uh, playing footloose and fancy free with with the Internal Revenue Service tax code uh, leaves you certain leeway which a man really would be wrong not to take. In other words, those of you who are intellectually sophisticated, who think for yourselves, okay, and who always sit in judgment on the word of God, you know who you are. Note what it says here. It says, for what does the scripture say? The Bible is our authority. We hate authority and we hate submission. But always have a posture of submission to Scripture. And all he has to do is just say that at the beginning of verse 3, 4, what does the Scripture say? And then he quotes Scripture. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believe is not obey. He doesn't say Abraham obeyed God and it was given to him as a wage. He says he believed God and it was credited. And so his belief is credited to him as righteousness. It's unbelievable to think that all we have to do is turn to God to be saved. We don't have to bring our righteousness in our hands. He's already said this about a thousand times in the book of Romans. And he says it again. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what did Abraham believe God about? Well, do you know where this comes from? This comes from the book 
of Genesis, he's quoting a well-known text in Genesis, Genesis 15, 5 and 6, where the God, the mighty God of the universe, took him, Father Abraham, outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. Have any of you read any articles about light pollution? You know, with the person, meteor showers that are, that are coming. I read this uh, headline that said that the place that's darkest in the USA is in uh, the middle of Idaho. All right? We have no idea what Abraham looked at because none of us have ever seen anything like it. Unless you've been uh, somewhere in Australia is, is about the only place that approximates it. The light pollution is so pervasive across the world today that we have no idea what the Milky Way looked like to Abraham when he was taken outside by God. But literally, it's called the Milky Way because it was so brilliant, brilliant with the number of stars in it that it really looked as if somebody had just spilled a, a huge jar of milk across the sky at night. It was brilliant. And so think of that, and then all the stars around the edge, they had no light pollution. Abraham was looking at a sky that was absolutely dripping with stars, as far as the eye could see, more than he could count. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham, last night I got a, a very sweet uh, email from a woman. I, I've never met her. But she said, you know... She said, I, she said I, have, I have been very thankful for your teaching on, on the blessing of fruitfulness. And she said, finally, at the age of 43, and my husband at the age of 46, after many, many years and tears, we found each other and married. And she said, and now we just desperately desire to have children. And she said, but the doctors had said we can't. So would you just pray for me? Thank you. Goodbye. And we think about the way we think of children today. And, and we have no clue the aching and longing of Abraham and Sarah for children. Imagine having God rub their noses in the fact that they still didn't have. And Sarah, with a womb, what? As good as dead. <laughs> you know? And here God takes Abraham out. And he says, so shall your descendants be. Can you imagine the temptation to Abraham to be cynical and bitter and sarcastic and act one way before God and then go in his tent and laugh with his wife? Right? But it says in Genesis 15, then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A man is not justified, a man is not declared righteous because of his works. Good though they may be in some respects. Abraham did obey God and his faith wasn't false, but it issued in works that will testify to God at the last judgment. Yet he was a sinner. And you know Abraham was a sinner, right? You remember twice passing his wife off as his sister, and then his son does the same thing to his wife. Okay? What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
It was Abraham's belief in God's provision that God credited to him as righteousness. And so we see that wonderful scene where Abraham has been commanded to sacrifice his own precious son after God fulfills the promise. And they're up on the mountain. And Isaac can't figure it out. Isaac says, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, Genesis 2, 22, 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. My son. And so the two of them walked on together. And so God himself had provided the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as the prophet Jeremiah or John the Baptist called out. And so, no, Abraham did not think that he was to provide the righteousness. He did not think that God would fail to provide the lamb. And so, he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. And so the Apostle Paul goes back and hammers home the point he's just made. He believed God, and it was credited to him as right. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, and then he goes back and he says, but the guy that works, if he works, he gets paid a wage. Of course, the workman is worthy of his wages, and if God requires morality, goodness, keeping of the laws, the way of entering his glorious presence, then the man who is sort of good, kind of good, more good than bad, better than his father or neighbor, good in an evil day, better than his colleagues, not divorced, not a thief, generally speaking, not too bad with his tongue, not too bad with his imagination sexually, not addicted to wine, not addicted to beer, not addicted to crystal meth, not addicted to Valium and sleeping pills, sort of generous in a certain carefully controlled and contained way, Sort of loving sometimes when it's not too costly. Careful to read his Bible and pray and have devotions most days. Those men, those women, have earned their wage of eternal life. And I think what I just did was describe Presbyterianism in America today. I think that's who we are. We go through our list. All we have to do is make sure that we remember that God grades on a curve. We're his people. We've been baptized. We take the Lord's Supper. We're members of the church. The elders must have thought there was a believable profession of faith. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. And I think a lot of us, if the way we live with our children and with our wife and with our husband were the way we dealt with God when we stand in his presence at the judgment seat, we would say to him, the one who works is owed his due. I think that's what we would say to God. It, we know that that's what the Romans would say to God because what's the Apostle Paul writing about this unless that's what they'd say to God? And yet... What are we talking about? Wasn't it just declared in God's holy word that there's no fear of God before our eyes? You remember, that's what it says in chapter 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That none is righteous, no, not one. And so if we're talking about wages and works, there is no hope for us. No man who has ever lived has been righteous, not one. Not you, not me, and not your father. Okay? Verse 5 but to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Think about that. The one who doesn't work. The one who doesn't work and looks to God's righteousness, to the faith of righteousness, that person has that righteousness of God credited to him. It's not a wage. God owes nothing. But faith is the instrument God uses to place to our account the righteousness of his son. This is the teaching of scripture. And if you think you've got it, that this is something that's old hat to you, you have to ask yourself, why, why is he going to go on again and again? We're, we haven't even gotten into the argument yet in Romans. Why does he go on again and again and again if you have it? You know, you really do think you have it. You know, this is, this is old hat to you. It, it, it's, for a man is saved by grace through faith, and this not of himself. It is a gift, lest any man should boast. We all can recite it, and we all know it. But do we believe it? Now, this is where I want to get real personal. I think that, that, that because he goes on then, let, let me finish the text. Uh, his faith is credited to him as righteousness, and then it hasn't been enough to quote one of the fathers of the Jews. He, he brings in the other, right? So he's, he goes to Abraham, and then he goes to David. I mean, this is, this, is, this is a pair that nobody can stand against. First Abraham, then David. And he quotes David saying what? Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Okay, so we have Abraham. Did he brag before God? No, no. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteous, right? Okay, there's Abraham. Now he turns to David and David. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are not taken. The man whose sins are covered by God. Okay, here's Abraham, and here's David, right? And again, we're all sitting here thinking, yeah, I got it, you know, that's, that's, yeah, we've been taught well. Okay, you've been taught well. Now, here's where I want to end. Okay, you ready? This is the application. If I were to ask your wife in your home, whether your children know you as a man who confesses his sin, what would her straight-out answer be immediately? Okay? If I were to ask your children, whether you're a man who's known for confessing his sin, what would your children say? Some of you may not currently be married, some of you may be single, so then my question to you is that you're here in the household of faith. And I ask you, would the people of this household of faith point to you and say that you are a man who is known for confessing his sin?
And those of you who are women, same question to you. I generally speak of men knowing women are listening. Are you known, mother? Are you known, Titus, to woman? Not for always having the right thing to say, but being very tender and sensitive about your own sin. Is that what people here know you by? Come on. Because if your family and your spouse and the people of this church do not know you as a person who confesses your sin and is very sensitive to it, you do not believe what the Apostle Paul just preached to you. You don't believe it. It is absolutely impossible for us to live with God in a way that we do not live with our families and with the people of the church. Do you understand this? And so you have a job to do. You have a job to do. Now, why did I preach this a few weeks ago in, in our church? <laughs> oh, my. Well, of course, everything has a context. And we were dealing with a battle, a royal battle between some people in the church who absolutely refused one of them to confess their sin. And I mean, the sin was so obvious to everyone, but this person, you know, it was like, oh, oh, you know, it was so awful. But she, oh, 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 she was not about to admit it. And it was, it was so awful. My wife wrote her. Other people wrote her, you know. I mean, pleaded with her on and on and on, trying to have love cover what? You know what? A multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, you know? Nobody minds you being a sinner. You, you realize that. There's nothing pastors like better than for you to confess your sins to them. Trust me, it's the high point of our ministry. Okay? I have to go to this because I'm, I'm bad at stopping on time. So, okay? <laughs> I'm trying to be an old dog learning new tricks. All right. I tell people in the church that the pastors and elders and the tightest two older women of the church never, ever, ever remember your sins. What they do remember is your pride and refusal to admit them. That makes a lasting impression. I'll tell you a little story. There was a woman one time who gave up, got up and gave a testimony in our church, and she's like a, a daughter to me. I love this woman dearly. And in the middle of her testimony, this sweet young mother talks about how she had committed a very serious sin a few years earlier, and she'd gone to the elders and pastors of the church and confessed it to them, and how thankful she was for their admonition and their discipline and stuff. And I was sitting in the pew thinking... You know, what? <laughs> I, for the life of me, couldn't remember her anything that she had done that was anything but perfect, you know? And, and then, pow, it hit me. 
And I remembered it. And it was a horrible sin. But she had come to the elders and the older women of the church, and she had confessed it, and we had disciplined her. And she was meek and submitted, and she was righteous, you know? Listen. What is the sense of having a Savior who covers the sin of the ungodly if you refuse to be ungodly? You are ungodly. You. Not your husband, not your wife. You are ungodly. And would you please get over yourself and begin to live among the people of God with humility? Okay? And, and listen, I don't know anything about your, what's going on in this church. Sometimes I have, but I don't currently. All right? And so I'm not saying this because I think that you need this. I'm saying it because I know I need it. And I assume that other people that I preach to need what I need. So confess your sin. Because why? Well, because God says that he is the one who is righteous. And if you will have faith to say you're ungodly, you will be washed with the blood of his son. Okay? And so that's my love to you as my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. Have faith for your sin. Forget your pride. God resists the proud. Be a sinner with your family, in your marriage. Be a sinner with the other people here. They'll love you. Love covers a multitude of sins. Not just with God, but with the people of God. Father, we thank you for the wonderful promises of your word. We pray, Father, that our children will grow up hearing us confess our sin. And we pray, Father, that this will be true. Because first, we confessed our sin to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.